Welcome to Podcast as Code, a show about the operation side of the software development lifecycle. I'm Mitchell Scott. And I'm Gabe Cook. Today, we're going to talk about build automation. But first, um, a little update. I was out of the state for like 10 days and I got a little bit of the COVID while I was gone. So uh, don't mind if my voice sounds a little sickly. I'll be fine. Luckily, just a little bit. Just a little bit. I'm, I'm not feeling too bad. I just probably sound a little congested. So it's all right. This is my second time to have COVID. Um, like six months apart, though. So it's all right. Gabe, have you had COVID yet? <laughs> no, I haven't. Actually, I was overly careful probably in 2020. And I, I never got it. Yeah. My first time, my kids brought it home from school. And then this time, like, just... Disneyland and wedding stuff, unavoidable, big group of people. Yeah. It's all good. Unfortunate. See, it's weird, though. I was at a wedding, too, about the same oh, yeah. time as you, I oh, guess. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think I have a good immune system, but it's not affecting your voice too much. You sound fine to me. So hopefully, Sweet. hopefully it comes across well to everyone else. Yeah. So I, I haven't noted any current events of you. No, it seems like it's been pretty quiet. I mean, I saw a quick, we mentioned the open TF collective Terraform fork in the last episode. They have a repo now, which is public and that, you know, pretty recent between the last episode and this one, but they haven't released anything yet. So I don't really think it's a huge deal, but it's cool that there's a repo. Uh, That's really all I saw. Yeah, I think, I think we mentioned it last time, but they had, it looked like they were going to dedicate some full-time engineers to that project. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to be a good one to watch for sure. Yeah, it's backed by some companies which provide basically Terraform cloud services. So they're exactly the people you know who HashiCorp was targeting with this modification. So yeah, right. I think they they could right. afford to say, okay, we're going to put some people on this full time because it's our whole product. So right, yeah, it's important to their continued existence as companies exactly so yeah definitely keep an eye out but i i don't think it's a huge deal at the moment nice well cool let's move on to our main topic um build automation which you know we sometimes will refer to as ci and like what is ci and and how does that work with build automation so ci stands for continuous integration it i i guess you know has histories to automated testing um but it's kind of evolved to a lot more than that and you'll usually even see it grouped like ci slash cd and that you know then is continuous integration which is kind of automated testing building things like that and then continuous deployment is automatically deploying it to whatever you know however you host it so we're mainly talking about the ci portion in this one although they're both pretty important. I think we will touch on CD occasionally. Yeah. And we kind of, we touched on how we're doing CD well, continuous deployment, um, which is we're, we're using GitOps for that. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a whole episode talking about GitOps, So that solves most of that for us. But like you mentioned, we'll touch on a couple little details later on. Yeah. And there are always special cases and different, you know, ways that like, sometimes you can't always use GitOps. If you're using some cloud service or something, which we'll touch on. But yeah, GitOps basically takes CD and 
uh, takes it out of the cloud and puts it basically in your cluster. Yeah. So how do you even run a, like a CI job? How do you configure it? Where does it run? Like what tools are we using for this kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of tools and I think this is always kind of a pain point, like evaluating what the best tool, like for me or what the best tool for my company is there have been a few that have kind of emerged as like the the most common most configurable type ones uh, but all of them behind the scenes are at least most of them i don't i don't want to say all of them because i don't know for sure but most of them are configured with like yaml files somewhere in your repository and you basically define steps for you know like here's how you can test the app run through these steps and then here's how you can build the app and make sure that this build section depends on tests or you know something like that some of the common tools are github actions is a pretty big one recently because it's just integrated with github and if you have a github account you get unlimited minutes in public repositories and some number of minutes in private repos i don't remember the exact number but gitlab also has a really good ci offering and there are lots of others um, like circle ci and travis ci and those are cloud tools and there's other local ones like drone and now giddy or gitty has one called git gitty actions uh, so there are tons <laughs> i mainly have used github actions is that the same for you yeah i've used gitlab ci a little bit but yeah i'm much more familiar with github actions at this mm -hmm. point yeah, and they all have like pros and cons, honestly, like even GitHub Actions, which personally, I, I really like GitHub Actions. And there's some things that I think I've just gotten used to. And it's like, yeah, that's definitely kind of a downside, but eh, I can work around it. So we'll touch on some of those. Yeah, and each. Unfortunately, there's not like a super well organized standard for how these like how you build out and define these jobs. I mean, like you said, they are usually yaml um they're usually not declarative you're def you're defining like steps and it's gonna like stepwise proceed through those um but like gitlab you can include templates a little bit differently than you can in like github actions for example it would be nice if there were like a more standard way to you know this is a ci file that i could run in gitlab or github or wherever and I think there are some projects that are trying to form standards like that, but it's a pretty rapidly evolving and still maturing area. So I assume at some point down the road, there will be some sort of more portable standard. Uh, but today there's there's not so much. So if you build something out in GitLab, it's not going to be trivial to just move that into GitHub Actions. You'll basically have to rewrite that CI job that you've built out. Yeah, and especially some of the specific features like GitLab may have added this since I last used it but we, as far as I know I think GitHub was the first to introduce what's called a matrix so in the past you know you could define test steps to test your application but a good use case for a matrix is what if I want to define the test one time and then run it on like Windows Mac and Linux all at the same time and it's really cool at GitHub. You can just say, oh, yeah, I want a matrix. <laughs> I want these three operating systems. And then it'll just do it in parallel. GitLab may have added that, but like, I think it's hard to form a standard when there's so many new features coming out all the time and things like that. 
Yeah, and sometimes there's a big gap in, like, kind of a feature gap. So for for a mm-hmm. long time, GitLab had their templates or where you could like include YAML or jobs that you had configured kind of on a more global level. And I think they had that for a couple of years before GitHub implemented reusable workflows. I think they had that before GitHub Actions even existed, to be honest. Yeah, it could be. Because uh, I used that sure. probably back in 2017. I remember using a template. Yeah, and that's a really powerful feature to not have if you've been used to it. Mm-hmm. And we're still in the process, like where we work, um, of going through and converting everything to reusable workflows uh, because... Which, by the way, is, is how you do that in GitHub Actions. It's called a reusable workflow. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, so we're still in the process of ripping out all of the, like, repeating ourselves that we had to do. So, you know, the way our repositories are laid out, in every application repository, there's there's a, CI, a GitHub Actions, like, workflow defined in YAML. And it does testing and builds and stuff like that. And so in each one of those repos, we have a unique copy of the job and you know in like 98 percent of the cases that could be that's identical to another repository maybe with some variables tweaked or whatever right so now github supports the ability to call a reusable workflow like that you define in some centralized repository and you change the variables you want and it's really short you know it goes from being 40 lines to like seven lines or whatever mm-hmm and more importantly, if you need to make an update, like if you need to bump the version of an action that you're calling for compatibility reasons or, or whatever, you do that in one place instead of in like 200 places. Yeah. And it was pretty powerful. We have some builds that go to Google Cloud, GCP, and some that go to AWS. And we were able to make it so that it supports both. So if an app needs GCP, it can have it. If it needs AWS, it can have it. If it needs both, I we haven't needed that, but I'm sure it could have that too. So it's cool that like yeah. you can template out jobs and add ifs and stuff like that. So hopefully it would fit for almost everything, but it still can be hard to manage. Another thing which is always different and has kind of just become second nature for me in GitHub is what GitHub calls outputs. So you can run a certain command and then grab some data from it and pass it to a different job. And that is always a little bit different syntax. Like, do you set it to an environment variable? Do you have to write it to a file? Is it not possible? Just depends on the tool. So it can be kind of frustrating picking a tool and then learning its quirks. But once you get good with it, it's it's really satisfying and the benefits are really, really worth it. Like being able to push a change to a website and get a big red X next to your commit. And then you can know, oh, I shouldn't deploy this because, you know, I, I broke something either on the back end or on the front end or whatever. I, I just broke something. And then being able to click through and see logs is really good because without CI, you know, you could still do all of this, but we're only human and we're going to forget and ci tools don't forget which is great yeah and and on both like github and gitlab if you have failing pipelines or or actions that will block merges or you can set it up to block merges Mm -hmm. so that like you you can define certain jobs that absolutely have to succeed for someone to merge something into production for example um let's talk about where these 
where these things run and like what they're running. Yeah. So we really haven't mentioned like much self-hosted. Um, all the kind of tools that we've mentioned are typically in the cloud, uh, like GitHub Actions, GitLab CI. If you use their cloud tools, by default, you get cloud CI runners. Um, but most of these you can also host yourself. And that's actually where CI first started. A long time ago, before all of the you know cloud native push started happening, people could host a Jenkins server within their infrastructure and run CI jobs on their server. And you still can do that nowadays. So like you can run a GitHub Actions runner in Kubernetes. And whenever you push new code, it'll spin up a pod or a container for that. And it'll run through your job. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, in most cases, you should try to rely on the cloud runner. Self-hosted runners have some benefits. They, I mean, obviously it's your hardware, so it's probably cheaper. And there's a little bit less of a constraint on some of the GitHub outages recently have been specifically for action runners. Yeah. And if you host your own, that outage didn't happen for you. Like if your servers are up, you have CI still. But the cloud runners, I mean, first of all, for public repos, again, it's completely free. And it kind of is another failure point, which is nice to alleviate. And it's also pretty cheap. CI minutes aren't too bad. So it just depends. No, I think across all, our whole organization and, you know, we, we work at a small software shop uh, with 40 to 50 developers mm -hmm. around. I think our GitHub Actions bills in the one to two hundred dollar range a month. and that's up quite a bit from where it used to be because we've been pushing really hard yeah, to it's, make sure all dependencies are up to date. Yeah. Where in the past, it would just be security updates. So all the dependency updates have taken up some more CI minutes. I think before that, it was like $50 a month for all of our CI. Yeah. Yeah. And like we mentioned there have been some outages lately. I'm sure if you look at the like uptime for GitHub Actions, I'm it's probably four nines or better. It is frustrating when that goes down. Because, you know, we'll start getting hit up by our, our developers and they're like, hey, my builds are failing. Can you take a look? And it's like, oh, yeah, there's an interruption right now. Try again in five minutes. And that's usually how, what it, how it goes. Yep. Um, try again in a few minutes or or just wait a few minutes and that job will get unstuck. It'll get, go from pending to, to running. Um, so it is. it can be frustrating. Um, but it's, it's kind of like all the cloud services. You have to evaluate the SLA and is it mm -hmm. worth you dealing with hosting services to to get around the potential for an outage or some downtime it is frustrating because it's a little bit out of your hands like if they say ci is down and i'm hosting it then i can go oh shoot sorry i messed something up but if it's just yeah a the GitHub downside outage. is that you have to stop what you're doing and go <laughs> fix that thing true so like yeah the 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 pro is that it's outside your control the con is also that it's outside your control it's you know, you're it's, right. It's kind of the trade off you make with all those kind of SaaS services. The duality of cloud hosting. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I mentioned Kubernetes. I couldn't find the exact runner that I was thinking of. It seems like back when I was first looking into this, GitHub had a few solutions they were offering, and now they've kind of settled on the Kubernetes version. Um, but there also was one I saw at one point that would run each action job in a Lambda, which was pretty cool. It ran in a Lambda container and it would just spin it up. It would run the job and then it would terminate. 
I, I feel like I would prefer Kubernetes because I, I didn't even try that one out because Lambdas have a 15 minute runtime limitation, which is quite a long time, yeah. but sometimes actions, you know, sometimes you need longer. Yeah, we, we definitely, you and I built an app recently that took longer than 15 minutes. <laughs> that took like, yeah, 25. So yeah, that would have been yeah. annoying. Yeah. For sure. Let's, uh, let's talk about what, what kind of things we use these CI jobs for. And I think, I think the biggest one for us would be Docker container builds. Yeah, we try to host everything in containers. I think there are a couple of edge cases, but overall, nowadays, even, you know, anything in Kubernetes will be containers. Even like Lambda jobs can be in containers. So that's our biggest use of CI. We really try to rely on writing like multi-stage Docker builds where you can build multiple sections at the same time and then kind of basically copy the files together and merge those together in the end you that that helps a lot with like the speed and the caching and in a lot of apps like where you build a back-end service and a front-end service it's pretty easy to say okay build the back-end in one container build the front-end in another and then have a final container that copies those files together so we use that a lot um making sure that caching is using like the github native cache so that you know maybe the first run on some build will take usually seven minutes or so and then the second run will take 30 seconds because you want to try to keep it fast yeah and, and you yeah you mentioned keeping it fast you basically pay for you kind of pay for time twice right you're paying for it and that you have a developer who's waiting on this build to succeed or fail so that they can iterate quickly on it because typically these are fast enough that a developer is not going to trigger a build and go to lunch. It's trigger a build, wait, you know, two to five minutes and, and then iterate or troubleshoot. But you also pay in CI minutes. So the faster these things are, like the more time your developers are spending not waiting on builds and, and the less dollars you're spending as an organization on that compute. That's true. I never think about the developer side of things, but yeah, it's doubly good to keep it fast. Um, and then, you know, we push them to some container registry so we can later on deploy them to Kubernetes. So we use GitHub Actions. So there's an action that does a lot of that just in one. It'll, it'll build, it'll check for cache. It'll, it can even build in multiple architectures if you need like ARM or something like that. And then it'll push to the container registry all in you know, with minimal configuration, which is really nice. And it's an official one by the Docker team. Um, there's another one that we've used before, but we we had some small limitations with it called Canico. I think if you're using GitHub Actions, I would really push for that official Docker build action. But in other CI offerings, sometimes you don't want to run Docker as root. And Canico is a tool that can build those containers without root privileges. It has some limitations on some new Docker file syntaxes, but otherwise, you know, it's been pretty solid too. Yeah, we are successfully using it in one place. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's caused small issues when it's like, oh, we could take advantage yeah. of this new Docker thing. Oh, <laughs> never mind. We can't yet. They're quite a bit slower to integrate new Docker features. And the symptom of that is like you have a Docker compose file with with some cool features in it. And then 
like locally the builds are fine and then you push it to your ci or to your like remote and then ci runs and the build fails for weird reasons and you're like i don't understand why it's different and then it, it could be because you're using you're using the docker engine locally and then you're using Canico during ci so that it can cause problems so definitely keep an eye out for that if you want to try out Canico. yeah um it does seem like it's built a little with more like kubernetes native stuff in mind it's kind of designed mm -hmm. to run in a container inside a kubernetes cluster whereas if you're just using like the docker daemon that's really not designed for being run inside a container at all there are some hacky workarounds so you can do docker and docker um but i think we're using build x which is that's what that action uses that you mentioned like the official one yeah and it's fine running in a container it's it's modern it's it's good also docker and docker wouldn't work if you're using something else like container d which kubernetes recommends nowadays so because there is no docker socket with container d yeah that's true so yeah build yeah. x is definitely recommended at least by me yeah and, and you do want to be careful about um using stuff that would require you to have like an open docker socket that's that requires root like you mentioned and that's really not great from a security standpoint so yeah, yeah. that's a concern that i've always had with docker i have seen so many public repositories in the past which make it seem so simple like oh yeah just run our app uh, bind the docker socket for example, old versions of the traffic reverse proxy would say that. They'd say, oh yeah, just run it, bind the Docker socket, we'll do everything for you. And my concern is, well, that gives it full root access, so that's scary. So I yeah. agree. Definitely agree. I, I mean, I think it was a secure tool, but something to be careful with. For sure. For sure. Especially if you're on shared infrastructure. Yes. you got to be real careful about like opening root up to anything. Exactly. So speaking of, you know, different types of builds that we run through CI, we also use it for a lot of non-Docker builds. Um, personally, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Go or Golang. And there's a solid release tool called Go Releaser, which I've used in a bunch of personal projects now and a few other projects to basically be able to like compile my app into apt packages yum packages also docker containers honestly so that people can install them in ubuntu or debian or arch or whatever os they run so that was that was really cool um, to be able to you know just build and release on all of these different distributions i think it even works on windows but i'm not i'm not using any of their official repositories right now so that was really fun. I also like generated man pages and help text and stuff like that. Shell completions. So that was really, really powerful. And most of it wasn't Docker. Yeah. And we're also starting to add CI for our Helm charts that we maintain. I don't think we're finished yet, but Helm charts are a series of like go template files and there's a command you run to package them up and ship them to what they call like a chart museum. Or just a chart repository. Chart Museum was their hosting. Oh, Chart app. Museum is a chart. Yeah, yeah, but I I don't think it's recommended anymore nowadays. Yeah, so so much much like a container image, you you ship them to a repository somewhere, and 
there's also some like version bumping you have to do that you can also automate um so that that all happens cleanly and it's a kind of a pain to do manually so why not have ci do that when you push an update or tag a new version actually that's one thing we could talk about too is like when when do you run these ci jobs you can run you can run them on push you can run them on tag you can run certain jobs on pr creation labels merges it's super powerful all the triggers you get for these even on a schedule like on a basically a cron so you, you mentioned helm charts and i actually have a personal helm chart repo that i've been maintaining for probably about a year now and i've set up all that ci and it's been nice so helpful to have all the automation when i first built this repository i set up like an rss client and i would watch all of the apps that i host and when they came out with an update i'd manually go bump the version update the change log push it and i would i did have ci to do a release but another use of that CI is first of all, you know, you have the Helm chart release CI job, but I also set one up for when PRs get open. So I use an automated dependency update tool called renovate. And in that repo, whenever a renovate PR gets opened, it will do a bunch of basically a bunch of automation to detect like if the app being updated is a major, minor, or patch update, it'll tweak the change log, it'll bump the version to match whether it's major, minor, or patch, and then it'll push that so that the PR then will, when I merge it in, it'll automatically release the new version. So that has saved so much time and made that Helm chart repo become a lot less of a burden than it was when I first released it. Yeah. Um, and then also I did want to mention another good use for non-Docker builds is if you're using GitHub pages, it's pretty common to like build your website and push it to GitHub pages with CI, but that's you know, a pretty quick one. That's one of those tools I mentioned earlier where it'll be outside of your control, the infrastructure. Yeah, that, that one is so easy that like GitHub gives you a button to click when you set up, like tell it you want to set up pages and it just builds it like for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the standard workflow is like, you have your main branch and you build when you push to main and then you push to like a GitHub pages branch or GH pages. And when it sees you push to that branch, it's like, oh yeah, let's deploy this. So it's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if anyone has a static site or static site generator and you haven't looked at GitHub pages as a way to host that for completely free, uh, give that a look for sure. Yeah. Would recommend. It has one limitation that's frustrated me in the past it doesn't work with us like single page apps where you want all requests to go to the same html file basically single page apps where you have like a request router on the client side so that might be a limitation but it's free and the uptime is better than github it doesn't really seem to go down when github goes down no i do think the repos have to be public though for it to be like completely free okay yeah so Probably fine because like the assets are going to be public anyway if it's a public website. But, you know, sometimes you may not want your Git history like (laughs) out there publicly. True. Maybe because you're not super great at like JavaScript and HTML and you're embarrassed of things you've had to do. (laughs) I feel that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely not speaking from experience there at all. Yeah, that felt weirdly specific. (laughs) 
So, on to the weird stuff. Yeah, and I guess the first one's not all that weird, right? It's it like gave CI its name, which is you know continuous integration, and like the mm-hmm. the quiet part is testing. Um, so yeah, testing is it's a great way to do testing as part of the CI jobs, and that's how these started. So, you know, if you if you do it on every push, you can do things like linting and um like static security analysis just on push so every time a dev ships code you can run run your tests run your linting run your security tools against the the code base and if something is not correct you can break the whole workflow at that point because if these jobs fail and other jobs depend on them you know you get a red x and the workflow exits and that's it like you're not shipping code to production today mm-hmm yeah, having the automated testing is useful. It It's always a little harder, though, to automate integration tests. There's there's integration tests and then there's unit tests. And unit tests are usually really easy to automate. You just run a command. Integration tests are always a little more troublesome. Right. A lot of integration tests will want a running instance of the app and like a running database, stuff like that. So that can be a little hard. But once it's working, it's so nice to be able to know that you broke something before it goes to dev and like a client has an issue with testing. It's nice to catch it earlier than that. Yeah. Moving into some of the more weird stuff. Actually, there's one other kind of normal thing, which is deployments. <laughs> oh yeah. That's normal too. Why do we have that in the weird? <laughs> it's non, yeah. Yeah. So deployments so, is like the CD portion. Um, yeah, so we've done this historically. We've used CI jobs to do like Helm updates into our running Kubernetes environment. Um, we're moving away from that. We're moving more to getting getting things more into a GitOps workflow. And the way we're doing that is so the the application code repository still runs all the tests and it runs build. And then there's a deploy step, kind of in air quotes, because it's not actually doing the deployment, but it is patching the manifest that will cause the app to get redeployed or to pull the new version down with our GitOps tool, which is Flux. And Gabe, you actually wrote that tool. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, so it's open source. Uh, We can link to it in the show notes. Uh, It's called YAML, uh, which is short for YAML and template. But it basically lets you set a template in your manifest file that defines like where a certain value should go or what value should get templated. And then you can just call a command and say, you know, like run YAML against this file with the new tag equaling whatever. And it'll automatically find that value in the YAML and template it and then edit the file. And it's really nice. Yeah, and it uses inline YAML comments yes. to do that tagging. Yeah. So like... Like in our case, we've got our application manifests. Uh, they're actually Helm release manifests in Flux, um, but we've got those with like a repo key value pair and then a tag key value pair. And on the tag one, we have the special tags that tell Yample what to replace in a comment on the line that's that's tag. When we run Yample, we just say replace like tag with the git commit of the app repo because that's how we do our deployments that's how we tag our our docker images yeah 
and then and then pass that information onto the the infrastructure as code repository where all those manifests live. And so that is also running that YAML tool is also a CI job. Yeah, that's kind of the CD step, I guess. But yeah, YAML's been really nice. It's not super common for a templating tool to be able to be non-destructive. Usually, like with a Helm chart, you define your template, and when you install it, you lose all the template stuff. In Helm's case, that's fine. That doesn't matter because you're just installing something to Kubernetes. But like with YAML, it wouldn't make sense if we made a template and then it got overwritten with the value. So it's really nice that we can set the template in a comment and then we can update that value over and over and over as needed and the template stays there. So it's been a cool tool. I think it would be useful for more than just deployments. I mean, personally, I've actually used it for a lot of different things. Like um, in my personal GitOps repository, I have... I kind of like hoarding domains. I have a ton of different domains that I host things at and they all have a DNS level certificate that I create in Kubernetes for the HTTPS certificates. And I have like a template certificate file. And then if I have to ever change anything about that cert, I just change the template, run it through YAML, and then all the all the certificates get changed immediately, which is really nice. I think it has a lot of uses. It's a nice tool because at all points... The file is valid YAML mm-hmm. with comments. You know, it's it's great. All right. Let's talk about some of the weird stuff we've done using CI pipelines. <laughs> like rotating AWS keys in hindsight. Yeah, which like keys bad. Uh-huh. I hate that one. But, but, but old, old keys worse. Exactly. Basically, nowadays, the recommendation is, um, especially if you're using GitHub, there's a way to log into all the cloud providers without using any sort of keys basically you know it'll authenticate based on what repo you're currently at so that's much better than having a key but there are some cases where you have to have a key and in that case you don't want like a 900 day old key i've seen that before and that always makes me nervous so no that's terrifying yeah it's nice if you can have a ci job which will update the ci key in place and then push the new secret to github so that your key will always be less than whatever you configure 30 days or 15 days or seven days. Um, yeah, I mean, you could do it on every, like every push or every like image push. You could, you could change the key. That's true. If you wanted to be crazy and how that works is you can kind of have two keys simultaneously in AWS or two sets of security credentials. So the job gets in with the aging one, builds a new one, and deletes the old one on its way out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it creates a new or one. Deactivates maybe. Deactivates the old one, pushes this new secret to GitHub, and then once the se- GitHub says, "Okay, we have the new secret," it deletes the old one. Yeah, which is it's pretty slick if you have to do things that way. But it's hacky. It's one of those things that's like, oh, this is really clever. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, but why though? Um, we've also played with uptime monitoring as a CI job. Um, you, like you mentioned earlier, you can, you can set these up on like a cron schedule. So why not have a job that runs every five minutes that goes and pokes a web server and returns its status? Yeah. You can totally do that. It was a pretty interesting project. I wasn't the biggest fan of it. It felt like, I think if you use self-hosted runners, it'd be a little more responsive because sometimes GitHub's runners are, you know, constrained just because 
they only have a certain number for everyone using GitHub. Right. It's a shared resource. Yeah. But it was really, yeah, it was really cleverly done. Like it will create this repo and then it actually stores the uptime history in the repository and it deploys your status page with GitHub pages, which is super cool and free. But we started having concerns like if GitHub Actions goes down, which does happen occasionally, all of a sudden you don't have uptime monitoring, which isn't isn't the best. Yeah, it it could be. It's a cool idea for sure. And there may be folks out there who, who it's working really well for. Um, I think you can only go as low as like every five minutes, right? Um, I don't remember now. I It seems more like GitHub Actions. You can configure whatever you want in the cron syntax, but it, it doesn't. Oh, but it won't run them concurrently, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it always just like does exactly what you ask. It's like you can suggest a schedule and GitHub will run it as they see fit. Um, I have, I personally am using it to deploy DNS zone files. So I'm obviously a giant nerd and I run <laughs> multiple bind DNS servers at my home for, for, for just house stuff. Like there's no business here. It's, it's just like my home domain. Um, and I got tired of like SSHing into them to edit those files. So what I do instead is I push those files, just the zone files up to GitHub and on push, I've got a, a CI job that performs a like basically a, it's basically a test. It's a, a validation of like, is this file syntax correct? Does this, you know, does it conform to the, to the bind like DNS zone file spec? And if it does, it deploys it to like it SSHs into my house and deploys that file and then runs like whatever the, the zone file update command is so that my dns servers pick the file back up oh actually it also updates the the dns serial number to like the unix timestamp as well so i don't have to keep track of serial numbers because for dns oh yeah because that has a change yeah for dns that's how the zone file replication and, and transfer and caching works is based on a serial number and the serial number has to be higher than the one before it for all that stuff to work properly um so you can try to infer it based on like whatever you could just, you know, some people start at one and literally just increment it. A lot of people will use like the, um, like the year, month, day, and then a couple extra digits for a date, which is nice and human readable and stateless and stateless. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, kind of stateless. Um, because right. those last couple digits are usually like the times I've edited this today. Oh, I assumed it was a timestamp. Okay. Um, usually the first, I don't remember how many digits it has to be. It's, I think it's 10. The first eight are the timestamp and the last two are like an increment counter. Mm. Um, or you can just dump like a Unix timestamp in there and it works just fine. That's the stateless one. <laughs> and that is guaranteed. That That's guaranteed to be stateless. It's just not as pretty to read. So actually, if you're out on the internet and you're curious when someone last updated his own file, ask, uh, ask for the, the start of authority, the SOA, the SOA. for it. Yeah. And you'll see the serial number and it very well may be, you know, 2021 06 and you'll, likely know that the last time someone edited that was like june 14th of 2021 mm -hmm. so kind of a fun little dns hack um but yeah i'm totally using that for my home dns updates and it works really well um and it's 
I mostly did that to learn GitHub Actions. I wrote that when I started working here and we were using GitHub Actions extensively. I wanted to get more familiar with it and it was a little personal project to wrap my head around how it all worked. Yeah, that's a pretty cool use. How does it actually update that? Does it directly talk to your cluster or does it commit it somewhere in your cluster picks it up? Um, or this isn't in your Kubernetes cluster, is it? No, my DNS server's not inside my cluster ah. yet. Um, so it does like an SCP. Mm, that Hey, that works. It's not GitOps, but it works with, you know, with with SSH keys. Yeah, it's not great, but it's also my DNS system's pretty old. I need to rebuild it someday. <laughs> yeah, put it on the list of fun things to play with. Yeah. And also on the list of fun things to play with is we'd like to do some CI stuff for the podcast. Mm-hmm. It would be really cool to automate like subtitle transcription using like OpenAI's Whisper, um, and you could totally do that through through a CI job. So that would be cool. There's a few different things like generating yeah. the Blender. So we generate for YouTube. We have like a visualization that that runs so that we have some some video attached to the audio, and that's we I do that through Blender. Blender has a full command line. It's probably possible to do that via CL, via CI, which would be super cool and also takes so long. Unless, I mean, if the repo is public, you can parallelize up to, I think the limitation is 256 runners in a single matrix. You could have each runner generate a slice and then recombine them in another job. Yeah, the issue is that it currently requires a GPU. Oh, okay, yeah. But that but yeah, makes it, sense. it'll be fun, oh, fun stuff we'd like to work on. I mean, you can do all kinds of crazy automation things in CI. It's really powerful. I mean, from yeah, yeah, it is from just kind of vanilla Docker builds to, you know, whatever you could dream up is if you can specify it sequentially, like you can build an automation for it and a trigger for it. And it's it's really powerful. Yeah, currently there's already some things, you know, other than that possible blender workflow there's some cool things we could do like you mentioned the transcription i think like thumbnail generation also wouldn't be too too hard oh yeah that'd probably be a cheeky little image magic command yeah because well so i designed it as an svg so we could update the text Mm, and then use inkscape to just output that to a png so probably don't even need image magic but that would work that's true yeah because you yeah here it's it's like native web svg stuff yeah inkscape can convert so I think that that would be pretty cool and we'll probably end up putting those in a public repo just so we get free CI minutes. So we'll post that link somewhere or give an update at some point when we've started playing with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then if, if you guys build anything cool, let us know. We'd love to, especially if it's something off the wall and interesting, like we'd love to see it for sure. Yeah. Love to hear strange, but novel uses of CI. Agreed. Cool. I think that we've covered everything I wanted to talk about. Same. Our website is podcastescode.show. Please send your wild CI creations or feedback on topics we've covered via email to contact at podcastescode.show. Or you can hit us up on our Discord, which we will link in the show notes. Join us in a fortnight to discuss outages and postmortems. Thanks for listening. See you next time.